Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. As the world scrambled to manage the outbreak, the question many have been asking is, when will a vaccine be ready? So who's working on it? How far have they got? How soon can we expect it? Because in the past, we'd be waiting 20 years for one of these. Well, uh, right now, it's being called the greatest unmet medical need before all humankind, a vaccine for COVID-19. The whole world hasn't uh, been waiting for a vaccine this anxiously since polio, they say. Now, some of the nation's leading biotech companies report fast-track progress in developing vaccines and treatments. By the beginning of 2021, we hope to have a couple of hundred million doses. Hey, Dave here again. How's your corona dystopia life going these days? Are you like the majority of those around the world who are really looking forward to the arrival of a vaccine for the COVID-19 coronavirus? Just think, with an effective vaccine, we could all just get an injection, build up our resistance to the virus, and then not worry so much about how close we are to other people, whether or not we're wearing a mask, or talking, or singing, or sneezing around other people. We could hug and kiss and go to restaurants again or, gosh forbid, go to a live concert or festival? Well, unless you don't already follow the news at all, you already know that there is a great deal of discussion these days about how long it could take to develop a vaccine to the SARS-CoV-2 virus that we're fighting right now. Some experts are saying we could have a vaccine by the end of this year while others are warning that it could take more like a year or year and a half or even longer than that. After all, the first vaccine that was ever developed and used widely up to now has been the mumps vaccine. That was back in 1967. That was the fastest development ever, and that took four years. Well, do you think you and your family and our society and our economy can hang on for four years under shutdown? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but recently even Dr. Anthony Fauci of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, he's starting to say that yes, a vaccine could be ready by the end of 2020 or the first few months of 2021 if things go well. Well, what's behind this optimism? Is Dr. Fauci succumbing to pressure from the president, or is he trying to prevent public panic, or is there some technological explanation for this optimism about a viable vaccine being developed that quickly? Well, I certainly don't know the politics of it, but today I wanted to focus a bit on the science of vaccine development. Indeed, there are some techniques available now that weren't around in the past. 
What are these scientific developments? It's genetic modification, otherwise known as genetic engineering. Now, the conventional approach for making vaccines is to isolate part of the protein that makes up the outer wall of that virus that you're trying to fight off, and then inject that protein into the body, like our muscle cells in the arm or the leg. And then our body's immune system recognizes these pieces of protein. They're called antigens. And if the immune system can be triggered enough to do it, it'll react by making antibodies. Proteins make great antigens because they form specific shapes. And each protein, and there might be sugars attached to the protein too, each protein has its own unique shape. And so our immune systems can learn to recognize that shape and then launch a complex coordination between the antibodies and the white blood cells that our body makes. These immune molecules and cells can then find the virus anywhere in the body and neutralize it. And then once our body learns how to do this, and hopefully it's just once, the immune system remembers how to quash future invaders that contain that same original protein antigen, and future infections are prevented. Now, the first step to making a traditional vaccine is to isolate the virus of interest, and presumably it's a virus that doesn't mutate much in the future. If it does mutate quickly, the vaccine, once you develop it, won't work on the newer versions, which is why we have to get revaccinated for the flu virus every year. Fortunately, the SARS-CoV-2 virus doesn't seem to mutate that much. There are different strains out there around the world, but they seem to be basically the same virus. Now, they could use the entire virus itself as a vaccine as long as they kill it first. That's what they do with vaccines against hepatitis A or polio or the rabies vaccine. But it isn't necessarily the best approach. And so with these kind of vaccines, you'll probably need several treatments. An alternative is for vaccine developers to just weaken the virus enough that its ability to reproduce in the body is reduced. Maybe it'll only make 20 copies in the body, that's all. But it'll still cause the immune response. The advantage of this approach is that the weakened vaccine induces a stronger immune response in the body. So you might not need more than one injection. And it might last your whole life. So some examples of these kinds of vaccines where they're using a weakened virus, it's measles, rubella, mumps, and chickenpox. So in these kind of traditional approaches, you really don't have to know much about the genome of the virus because all you're doing is weakening it or inactivating it. But it's still quite a production process, though. It's not that easy. Typically, manufacturers will synthesize these vaccines in chicken eggs. So either the live virus or weakened virus is injected into fertilized hen eggs. They incubate it for a few days to get the virus to replicate. And then they harvest the fluid from the inside of the egg and then purify the virus from that. And then that's the point where you'll inactivate the virus to form the vaccine so that when you give it to the patient, you're not going to cause a disease. So this procedure requires a lot of eggs and it requires a lot of time. You're talking two, three, four years for this kind of process. 
Now, instead of working with the entire viral particle, scientists might try isolating this specific protein or proteins from the virus that could serve as antigens. This is what they did with the virus that causes shingles and hepatitis B and the human papillomavirus. It's not a perfect vaccine, so the patient will need to get two doses, typically, to get full immunity. And if you take this kind of approach, you are going to have to study the virus to some extent. You're going to need to determine its genetic sequence and what proteins it's composed of. And so they might use genetic engineering to artificially synthesize the protein they want to use in the lab. These are called recombinant proteins. These recombinant proteins might first be synthesized in yeast cells growing on a petri dish or Chinese hamster ovaries that are also grown in vitro. This can take four to six months to do all this. But that's not the end of the story, because once you have a candidate vaccine that you can synthesize in the lab, it has to be tested for dosage, effectiveness, safety, and side effects. So first they might check it in tissue cultures grown on petri dishes. They might test it in lab-grown mice. They need to find out whether the immune system responds to this vaccine. Do the mice become truly resistant to the virus when they're challenged with it following vaccination? This is the point where they might realize the vaccine's not going to work and have to go back to the drawing table. But if it does work, they can start figuring out what doses to use on people. This preclinical stage can take a year or two, and so that's a long time. Now, if a potential vaccine looks promising, it needs to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration before researchers, and they're usually working for a pharmaceutical company, before they can start testing this on people. At first, it's a phase one trial where they'll involve maybe 10 to 100 healthy people. They'll give them the vaccine. And here, they're primarily looking at the safety of the vaccine, but also looking for side effects and to determine if the volunteers are indeed producing antibodies to the virus. Phase 1 trials typically last several months at least, but if things are looking good, they can move to Phase 2 trials, this time with hundreds of people being tested, and here they might actually include individuals who are at risk of acquiring this disease. Unlike Phase 1, these Phase 2 trials are involving randomized trials including subjects who receive only a placebo, a non-treatment, so you can compare people who have gotten the vaccine versus not gotten it. Researchers use phase two trials to further study the vaccine's safety and its ability to induce that immune response you're looking for. Then they can start looking at dosage and how many immunizations might be required, and then the delivery method like injection or oral. And phase two can take several months, but it can also take two years. And then if the vaccine still seems promising, the FDA can give permission for phase three trials that can involve thousands or even tens of thousands of volunteers. And that can last from one to three years. If the trials do show that the vaccine is effective at preventing the disease that the virus causes, and it has a relatively low number of side effects across a large swath of people, then the FDA can approve this vaccine for sale to the public. Now they're really going to have to be cracking eggs to get the millions of doses that are going to be needed for the general population. Well, what about this coronavirus we're facing now? 
Once information about the SARS-CoV-2 virus started coming out of China, and once the RNA sequence of the viral genome was published, and that was in January of 2020, within days, dozens of labs around the world started designing vaccines for it. By April of 2020, there were almost 80 companies and institutes in 19 different countries working on COVID-2 vaccines. Now, some of these efforts are just using traditional approaches like I've just described for you, the techniques that have worked so well for the past 70 years. The most well-known lab using the traditional approach is called Sinovac. It's a Chinese company. Sinovac is using an inactivated virus, and they've already shown that it can protect monkeys from developing symptoms of COVID-19, and they are already using it in human trials. And if that works well, they could start scaling up the manufacturing of this vaccine for the general public. It is time-consuming, though, remember, with the eggs. These inactivated viral vaccinations can often really do a good job of stimulating our immune systems, though. One disadvantage is that there can be side effects, like the mild fever or muscle soreness that many people get from the annual flu vaccine. So there are some efforts using the traditional vaccine development procedures. But most of these 80 labs that are trying to make a vaccine for the SARS-CoV-2 virus this year They've embarked on a gene-based approach because the techniques are now widely available and development of the vaccine could be so much faster. To quote a recent article in Scientific America, it was June 2020 by Charles Schmidt, quote, These labs predicted that a commercial vaccine could be available for emergency or compassionate use by early 2021 incredibly fast given that vaccines to brand new pathogens have taken a decade to be perfected and deployed. Even the Ebola virus, which was fast-tracked, took five years to reach widespread trials, unquote. If this new approach works, quote, it'll be the fastest vaccine development in history, unquote. But that's a really big if. Although there are labs that have created several gene-based vaccines for other viruses, not a single one has ever been commercialized for human illness. Now, what are gene-based vaccines? Well, genes are those sequences of nucleic acid. It's usually DNA, but in the case of this coronavirus, it's RNA. These nucleic acids can form long chains of molecules that are essentially codes They usually code for the eventual production of proteins. The idea behind gene-based vaccines is instead of making or isolating an antigenic protein and then putting that into the patient's body, you would actually insert the DNA or the RNA itself into the patient, into the body. And then once there, the genes will get transcribed and translated into the protein that could then serve as the antigen to direct the body to make the antibodies to fight off any future infections by the virus that you're trying to stop. So the idea of gene-based vaccine is to get the body to synthesize its own vaccine. Now, most of the labs doing this are trying to find a way to get ourselves to make an antigen called the spike protein. It's the spike protein that juts out from the SARS-CoV-2 virus like studs on a tire, or I guess you could say cleats on a sports shoe. The spike protein helps the virus bind to our cells 
especially our lung cells, and then the virus uses that to insert itself into our cells so it can multiply and then spread to other cells or to other people. Researchers are basically using one of three different approaches to insert DNA or RNA blueprint into the patient. The first approach is with a DNA plasmid. Now, a plasmid is typically a small, circular-shaped DNA molecule. Plasmid vaccines have been successfully used by veterinarians to vaccinate fish and dogs and horses and swine. One of the challenges to using plasmid DNA, though, is getting it into the cells. Not only does it have to get through the cell's outer membrane without killing the cell, but it also has to get into the nucleus of the cell. That's where the DNA is, the the chromosomes. One trick that's being tried now is to apply electricity to the cell. Not enough of a shock to hurt the cell, obviously, but since the DNA has a natural negative charge, you can use electricity to move it around. There's a company in Pennsylvania called Innovio Pharmaceuticals. They're using plasma DNA. Several years ago, Innovio launched clinical trials that were targeting the spike proteins of a different coronavirus disease called Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, MERS. According to the company's CEO, Joseph Kim, the antibody levels in vaccinated people, quote, are as good or better than those we see in blood samples from people who naturally recovered from MERS, unquote. Now, Innovio is trying to make a DNA plasmid vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. The second gene-based vaccine works at the RNA level. After all, the genetic blueprint for this latest coronavirus is composed of RNA, not DNA. The RNA can be prepackaged with lipids, that are then somehow injected into the body. The lipids are fatty molecules that can pass easily through those membranes that surround our cells and deliver the RNA to the cell. It's believed that RNA vaccines might actually be better than DNA plasmids at mobilizing the immune system. And they also appear to induce a more potent immunity, like a stronger memory in the immune system, and therefore require lower doses. Some other RNA vaccines that are in early-stage clinical trials right now are for viral diseases like rabies, HIV, and the Zika virus. So these RNA vaccines are pretty promising. Everyone on the news seems to be talking about this Massachusetts company called Moderna. They're using the RNA vaccine approach. Get it? Their name is Moderna. The last three letters are RNA. Now, Moderna broke a record in their research. It only took 65 days from the time that the coronavirus genome was first posted online for this pharmaceutical company to inject their first clinical trial volunteer with an experimental vaccine. Amazing, only 65 days. There are challenges to RNA vaccines, though. One is that they're less stable than DNA plasmid vaccines like warm temperatures can damage RNA, and RNA is quickly degraded by enzymes in our own cells. The half-life of RNA in our cells is very short because RNA is not really needed for long periods of time and because RNA gets recycled constantly. So RNA vaccines must generally be kept frozen or refrigerated at least. 
That creates a lot of logistic hurdles, particularly in poorer countries. DNA plasmid vaccines, on the other hand, are stable at higher temperatures, so you don't have that issue. Then there is a third type of gene-based vaccine. It's a little weird, though. It uses a viral vector to actually carry the vaccine into our cells. Johnson & Johnson is working on this approach. What they do is they insert the DNA sequence for, say, the viral spike protein into the genome of a common cold virus that's called an adenovirus or adenovirus. Now, adenoviruses have already evolved to infect our lung cells and to get their genes expressed into proteins. So if you add a gene for the coronavirus spike protein too, that antigen should get synthesized inside of our bodies. There are a couple problems using adenoviral vectors though. First of all, we do have our own natural defenses against this because our bodies immediately start fighting off cold viruses. But Johnson & Johnson is looking at adenoviral strains that are more sneaky. They're not recognized by our bodies so readily, so that might work. But on the other hand, adenoviruses themselves cause disease. They cause the common cold. And since so many of the early symptoms of COVID-19 is respiratory, who wants to get a cold when you're being vaccinated for a respiratory disease? But they're trying to get around that by engineering the adenovirus to be non-replicating. So it wouldn't be able to make copies of itself in our bodies and therefore it wouldn't be able to cause disease. After all, we just want this one coronavirus gene to be expressed, made into a protein. That's all we want, not the rest of that adenovirus. In late April of 2020, the University of Oxford began a limited human trial with a non-replicating adenovirus. And so they're making some progress with this. So people are working on it. So those are the three approaches that different research groups are working on in terms of a gene-based vaccine. Now, during the early part of the development process, the researchers are probably just testing them on lab cultures. This would be isolated cells growing on nutrient media in some sort of a sterile container. Once that system is worked out, they can assess the immune response in laboratory animals. And if those animals appear healthy and immune after treatment, the researchers can then start testing their product on people. And as mentioned before, there's phase one trials where you've got dozens of people, then phase two, hundreds of people, and then phase three, thousands of people. Well, how's that going? Where are we anyway? The company called Moderna, they began phase one human trials of its RNA vaccine on March 16th, 2020, and the federal government has already pledged almost $500 million to speed up mass production of the vaccines if the trials go well. Johnson & Johnson devised a prototype adenovirus vaccine in just four weeks, and they're now testing it in mice, ferrets, and rhesus macaques. On March 30th, 2020, the U.S. government and Johnson Johnson committed $460 million to fund a large human clinical trial, and that could begin in September if it all pans out. And then there's a company called Innovio there in San Diego. They have a DNA plasmid that's entered phase one human trials. That was back on 
April 6, 2020. So these companies have got a nice quick response to a virus outbreak that the world was not even aware of until January 20th, 2020. It's not exactly a head start, but at least it's moving forward and at unprecedented speed. Plus the fact that they can generate the vaccine, hopefully, by manipulating DNA or RNA in the lab rather than fooling around with isolating protein from eggs and all that, that's encouraging. Now, the Trump administration is trying to encourage this whole process with its recently announced Operation Warp Speed. The goal of Operation Warp Speed is to have 300 million doses of a safe, effective vaccine for SARS-CoV-2 by January of 2021. That's enough to essentially vaccinate every American. Congress has directed $2 billion towards this effort, and the White House has already started providing funds to five specific pharmaceutical companies. Now, there has been some criticism about these five companies that the government has picked to support right now because none of them are using the traditional, tried-and-true approaches to developing a vaccine, like isolating the protein and then using eggs to produce it, that kind of thing. These five companies are all using a more modern approach. It's the gene-based approach for making vaccines. Two companies are using the RNA vaccine approach. That's Moderna and Pfizer. And Moderna is planning to start phase three trials with 30,000 volunteers in July. And then AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson are both companies using an adenovirus vector. And the fifth company, Merck, is an established company that is relatively new on the coronavirus scene. But Merck had some good success with making an Ebola vaccine. And Merck is using the same procedure with this coronavirus vaccine. They're using a viral vector, but it's not using the adenovirus. It's using a different one called vesicular stomatitis virus. Vesicular stomatitis virus was successfully used to develop an effective vaccine against Ebola. And then there is one big company that's using the recombinant DNA approach. That was the first method I mentioned before. That company is called Sanofi, but it did not get funded by Operation Warp Speed, maybe because this is a French company, not an American company. Well, apparently time flies when you're talking about science because our show's over. We'll have to end it right there. But tune in next week for a continuation of this story. I'll try to provide you with a rundown of what could go wrong in this quest to develop a safe and effective vaccine for the coronavirus. And I hate to say it, but there are a lot of things that could go wrong. But don't get too distraught. There are things we can do right now to reduce the likelihood of contracting COVID-19. And you might be surprised For instance, there's one physician at University of California in San Francisco who's prescribing love. Now, doesn't love sound like a pretty good approach? Tune in next week. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. 
just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. Thank you.